Hello, hello, hello. My name is Robert. I am the recovery guy, and you have entered into the fix. Hello, hello. My name is Robert. I am the Recovery Guy. Thank you so much for tuning into Recovery Guy podcast. This particular podcast is from July 23rd, 2022, this last Saturday, when I was up at the St. Stephen's Episcopal Church in Boise, Idaho. I hope you enjoy this talk as much as I enjoyed being there. Be blessed and have a great day. Good evening. My name is Robert. I'm alcoholic. And it is good to be here. I am so grateful to have met my friend Bo. Uh, we met on social media, and, and I have a love-hate relationship with social media. There is no such thing as social media recovery. It does not exist, regardless of what my ego says, uh, because there's no accountability. And thank God for accountability in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, what a pleasure it was along the way meeting uh, Ed. And, uh, you know, meeting Ed is a very special thing for a person with my background. Um, I've been here for 36 years, two months, three weeks, and 28 days. And, and so I, I sponsor and work with a lot of people who have been around for 15 years and so on and so forth. And, and, and I'm constantly amazed that when I realize when they got here, I was here 20 years. And it gives me a sense of gratitude and a, and a deep reverence for what recovery has done for me. And then every now and then I meet a person like Ed, who we were talking, I think 46 minutes, my phone said, because I was pretty excited to talk to him. And, and I realized through the conversation, he was here 20 years when I got here back in 1986. And, and my heart just sort of swells because when you understand that people who have been here that long are still here, still serving, it lends credence to my sponsor telling me the magic formula for staying sober, and there's a magic formula, and it's called service. And, and I talked to my sponsor, I had relapsed after 71 days, uh, and, and I came back and I realized what a danger I was to myself. And I went to Jack when I was serious about recovery in the 12 steps, and I said, Jack, there has to be some magic, there has to be something that I can do that will guarantee that I'll never go out again. Because when, when you relapse and you understand the condition that we are alcoholic, going back out again is scarier than any meeting I've ever been in. And he said, Bob, I've never known a person actively involved in service who has ever relapsed. And he said, what are you going to do? And I started going to H&I and, and hospitals and institutions, for those of you who don't know. Started emptying ashtrays and making coffee and greeting like the two young ladies I, I met tonight. And to this day, I, I still serve. And he was right, because I've never met anyone actively and honestly involved in service who has relapsed. So those of you who are new, I, I'm so excited you're here. 
If you want another way of living, the sooner you can get involved in service to others. Because that's what the 12 steps is. The 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous prepares me to serve. Why do you think there's a step 11 where I sought through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God as we understood God, praying only for the knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out? Without a step 11, there is no step 12 because then step 12 tells me to go carry the message and then to practice these principles in all my affairs. So that is the magic. If you're new or relatively new and you're looking to find out what you need to do to never go back out, serve others because everything is about others because God is about others. And I'm glad to be here. I'm not only uh, an alcoholic, but I'm a happy, grateful, recovered alcoholic. And my sponsor, Slow Will, who's been sober over 42 years now, and I met him when I first came into the program. When I first heard him say that, I thought, who is this arrogant SOB? <laughs> you know, I can understand the happy, grateful, but man, recovered alcoholic. And I went up to him after the meeting. This was before he was even my sponsor. He said, dude, you, where, where do you get this from? And he took me to the forward to the first edition. And he said, if this isn't true, then everything else is a lie. Because this big book was written by 100 people who had recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And to show me how they recovered is precisely why they even italicized the word precisely to make sure to me that it stood out. And it stands out today. So if you're new, I welcome you. I remember being a newcomer. I remember being so afraid because if AA didn't work, I was going to have to go die. So many of it's the last house on the block. There's nowhere else for us to go. Family doesn't want us. I was on my second marriage and that was dissolving. No one wants us. We're not, we're not, I wasn't even employable anymore. And if AA didn't work, I was going to have to go die. It might have not been like walking out in front of a bus and dying. But I could only drink what I could only drink. And you can only do so many chemicals like I was doing and still survive. Either someone was going to shoot me or I was going to shoot myself or I was going to overdose. You were going to find me at the end of, uh, you know, Johnny's Locker in Las Vegas. Dead. But I'm here. And I'm happy, I'm joyous and free. And if I don't say this, my sponsor, Will, is going to hear this. And, and on page 132 of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, on page one, on, on line 17, it says, we absolutely insist on enjoying life. And I absolutely insist on enjoying life. It says in the Big Book that life was, for many of us, a veil of tears. But it's, it's not so anymore. You know, I love meetings like this because it reads some of my favorite literature, one of which is the preamble of Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other. If that's all I ever would have heard, I would have stayed. To this day, I don't know to what degree I had a problem with alcohol. I knew I had a mental obsession that's coupled with a physical allergy, so I can never safely consume alcohol in any level whatsoever. Same with drugs, because I did drugs alcoholically, right? And so, but
But I knew that I was lonely. I knew how fellowship starved I was. I, I knew how badly I wanted you to like me. I liked you. I needed you. But I needed you to tell me I was okay. So when that is written in the book, and, and I hope it affects you in a way, I hope you are as fellowship-starved as I was and so many others are. Because if you are fellowship-starved, you're going to do what Angela said. And by the way, congratulations. I love celebrating anniversaries with others. You're going to do what Angela says, and you're just going to stay. If it's sunny, you stay. If it's rainy, you stay. If you're joyous, you stay. If you're in pain, you stay. You just stay. Because in the beginning, that's all we can do is stay. I remember just holding onto the chair with all my might so I wouldn't get up and run out of the meeting when you were telling me about me. Because I heard the stories. It's like, how do they know that? How do they know that? Because we are, as it says on page 17, we're like the passengers of a great ocean liner when moment after rescue from shipwreck when joyousness and camaraderie and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table, we are the same. So often my ego says, I'm different than you. You don't understand me. You don't know what I'm going through. And the reality is the similarities are immense and the differences don't even matter because at the end of the day, we are alcoholic and could not manage our own lives, right? I am a big book thumper. And I make no apologies. Matter of fact, the most sober people I've ever met are big book thumpers. Because we finally have something to believe in. Because when you come from places that I come from, I remember, do you remember your childhood? I remember being afraid. Do you remember being afraid and not knowing why you were afraid? Because you're four and you're five and you're six years old? And I went to bed until I was 11 because I had such great anxiety. I didn't know if my dad was going to hug me or, or hit me. And my mom was so codependent, she would go along with whatever my dad did. But I remember growing up afraid. You know, on one hand, I, ate, I hate alcohol for what it did for me. But one thing that alcohol did for me, it kept me alive long enough to find Alcoholics Anonymous. There was a time where alcohol saved my life because it, it kept me from blowing my brains out. Because when you, when you go through life the way we go through life, we're afraid, we're lonely. I was the middle child of seven kids and yet the amount of loneliness I felt was so deep that I lost my way. I lived in a secret because if you found out how inadequate I really was, you would have asked me to leave my own family. And my dad, he was drunk. He didn't, he didn't know how I was being affected because he would have never said the things to me he said had he been sober because sober people don't act that way toward their children. You know, I'm very fortunate, I'm a jump ahead. I was able to reconcile with my dad before he died. The greatest gift, one of the greatest gifts of sobriety was becoming my dad's friend for two and a half years before he passed away. He was sober, I was sober. 
but when I was growing up, it was challenging. It was difficult, and I, and I would try to fit in different places. I became very athletic. I sing. I, you know, most improved student in the field of fine arts. Played football, basketball, baseball. Very athletic growing up. But I was, at the same time, I was out behind what they call B court, right? Where everybody was getting high and drinking. Back in those days, it was spinata, doing meth tabs and smoking dope and drinking as much as we could. That was like my daily regimen. Because I, I had to get sideways before I could face you. Because I didn't know how to go through life. And I remember the first time I drank alcohol was I was 14 years old and sitting under a tree. It was summertime and, and Don and Dean and Johnny, their parents had passed out like mine had passed out. So we thought, let's go get some liquor and meet back under the tree. Because we wanted to do what the big people did, as Father Martin would say. So we drank. And I drank the first time I drank because we could get away with something. I drank every subsequent time because of what it did to me the first time. You know, when you come from nothing, and you are nothing, and you're convinced you're always going to be a nothing, when you can find something that makes you an almost, you grab onto that thing. Because it sort of took the edge away, it sort of took the pain away of me never being a nothing because I was an almost. And in that window, in that moment of time where I was under the influence, everything was going to be okay. Nothing was bad, nothing was good. I was just okay right where I was at. And I lived my life as an almost. You know what I mean? Do you ever, do you ever just wish you could be an almost because it wouldn't be as painful as being a nothing? That's who I was. I didn't know I had the potential to be brilliant. I didn't know that, that I had something that you would want. I was just afraid. I was so afraid, once again, that you would find out who I wasn't. So I started to drink. And after a while, a little bit turned into a lot. I don't have a lot of funny stories. I'm not a big war story guy because there's really nothing humorous about my addiction. When you do the things that I had done and walk out on the people that you and I walk out on, there's nothing to me. I mean, I hear some funny speakers. They're pretty hilarious. And I appreciate and I enjoy them. I'm just not one of them. I thought I was real funny when I was drunk. I was even better looking if that's even possible. And I'm sure I was taller. And I know I was a better dancer. So let's get those things. Uh, so, somebody said, you know, they said, uh, you know, we, they were so shy when they would go out to a club. The more they drank, the other person didn't get better looking. They did, right? It was kind of like liquid courage. Oh, and I want to make a side note because I heard this just the other day. I, I love speakers and I, and I really love Father Martin. If you've never listened to Father Martin, you've got to YouTube this guy. He's just brilliant back in the 70s and the 80s and chalk talk and walking through the steps and on gratitude he, he actually did a statistic and and I think it's true right he said that for every sober person you see in Alcoholics Anonymous there's 35 more that will die I counted about 42 people in this room tonight 
that means there's over 1,200 people just based on our size who are going to die from this disease. I hope you stay because you're one of the 42, not one of the 1,300. I hope something inspires you to come back. So as I'm progressing in my addiction, I get in trouble and start having some real social and academic problems. And my parents moved me. I was living in Southern California, moved to Oregon between my junior and senior year. And I said, hell no, uh-uh. You can't do this to me, to take me away from everything that I ever thought I knew because now I was gonna go into an area that I knew nothing about. I was gonna be out of control in ways I never thought I would be. And this is, you know, you hear that, that thing, you know, um, I'll show you, I'll kill me, right? Okay, this, I, I find this to be funny in a sad way. <laughs> I jumped out of high school on January 3rd of 1972. Do you know why? Because I could. That was my birthday. I turned 18 years old on January 3rd. I went, this is the humorous part. I was going to graduate in May of that year. But I was so tired of having to drink part-time that I needed to have a full-time job. And that was alcohol. And I honestly, I did that. Dropped out of high school, January 3rd. I walked into the registrar's office at Corvallis High School in Oregon, and I said, I'm dropping out of school. She said, you can't do that. I said, I'm doing whatever I want. I'm 18 years old. What are they gonna do? They look at my ID. They, I enrolled and I went to the, the liquor store and started on my journey of being a full-time alcoholic. And still even then, if you told me I had a problem with alcohol, I would tell you that my problem was you. Because the number one rule of an alcoholic or drug addict is to protect the supply. And that means that no matter who had to come in or leave my life was necessary for me to drink, which I had to drink to live. Before I even understood what tolerance was, it had taken hold. And I had no choice in the matter anymore. I love again what Father Martin says. He says in Japan they have a phrase, first the man takes a drink, then the drink takes a drink, then the drink takes the man. By the time I was 18 years old, the drink had taken me. And I no longer had the ability to choose whether or not I drank. Sometimes I could choose in what circumstances I would drink in, but whether or not I was going to drink in the course of that day was already answered because I had a mental obsession coupled with a physical allergy. That mental obsession says you must have that first drink and the physical allergy says I'll take it from here. You know, I'm not one of those people that would go to a bar and, and say I'm just going to have two because I knew better. I might tell you I was going to have two, right? So I didn't look alcoholic, right? But I knew that I was going to show up three days later without the milk, you know? 
And we go on like this and we live like that and we're willing to destroy everything in our life to the degree that in 1982, I moved my daughters who were crying saying, Daddy, don't leave. And I walked out of their life. I was that guy who abandoned their kids and their wife. That's how far alcohol had taken me. And some of you understand exactly what that pain is like. You've either been left or you've left. Because nothing can get in the way of breath. If I told you right now to stop breathing, you would say, no, I can't. Because if I don't breathe, I'll die. That's what alcohol was to me. Alcohol was breath. I no longer had the choice in whether or not I breathed. Sometimes I had the choice on how much breath I took. But that was completely out of my hands now. I was spiritually and physically sick beyond my understanding. And this would go on and on and on. And I remember February 19th of 1986. And I stood in the mirror. I'd lost my job. I was a room service waiter at the Las Vegas Hilton. I'd lost my job the previous night. Gambled a $1,000 check at Davies Locker because they had free drinks, right? <laughs> and I stood in the mirror. And I don't know about you. Well, actually, I do. I would hear voices. Some are real and some are imagined. You know? And, and the voices in my head was every person in my life who I'd ever disappointed. And they would be like the tabernacle choir. And they would say, Bobby, 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 what are you doing? Remember that question? What are you doing? Don't you know you don't have to leave? Don't you know that you don't have to quit that job? Don't you know you don't have to go to jail? Don't you know? And what are you doing? And that morning I woke up, February 19th of 1986, and there were no voices. I was alone. And I knew that if something didn't change, I was going to die. I was 32 years old, and I was dead. And there was nothing I could do about it. Back in those days, we had phone books. Right? Some of you youngsters, they were actually real books and they were yellow pages and it wasn't Google on the phone. We didn't have those yet. And I looked in yellow pages and this is godly intervention because I didn't come up with this myself. I was drunk. But I looked under alcoholism and I started looking in the yellow pages. Now, I grew up in the streets of Los Angeles, like downtown LA, 3rd and Hill, where the original Angel's Flight was on Bunker Hill. That was my playground. I knew it. I knew what alcoholics were. I knew what winos were. They pushed shopping carts, they drank cheap wine, and they lived on the street. I didn't qualify for those things yet. Hadn't found a good shopping cart. And, 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 and whiskey always did for me what wine couldn't, right? I was a Boilermaker guy. <clears throat> and up to then, I hadn't lived on the streets. So looking under alcoholism, 
was God doing for me what I could not do for myself? And I started making phone calls. And I called and I called and I called. And if you didn't have money, didn't have insurance, it was like, hey, we'd love to help you, but we can't. Finally came across the Nevada Treatment Center on Martin Luther King Boulevard in Las Vegas. And they said, if you can get here within an hour with $50, we'll talk to you. I thought, well, I can maybe do that. I got a little excited. Someone wanted to talk to me after I told them who I was. So I called up my dad. My dad was sober at the time. I said, Dad, here's the deal. He said, I don't want to talk to you. Because he knew how, he, uh, how I came in at 3 in the morning. I said, no, Dad, really. If I show up at this place for $50, they'll talk to me. And I don't know if I've ever seen my dad move that quickly. He was over there. In, <laughs> my dad was over there in minutes. And because uh, he was about seven years sober at the time. And my dad came over and picked me up, dropped me off at the Nevada Treatment Center. And that's where my sobriety began. And I began to see that there was another way of living. So I was there in detox for seven days. And, you know, I'll tell you the most. Father Martin will, let's see. No, I think it was Stephen Covey said, the only thing more dangerous than, than, than a lie is half truth. And so they invited me to stay into their 90-day program, but you know, I had seven days of sobriety. I was uh, rocking, man. I had this thing figured out. I was starting to learn some of the lingo. I knew how to get over on you that we think we do, right? So, so I decided to just go to Alcoholics Anonymous because you began to introduce me into meetings and different things like that, the, the, uh, the Turning Point uh, Alamo Club in Las Vegas. And I started attending meetings there, and I thought, you know, I can do this. You know, but I was sort of sidestepping the part that said this is a program that demands rigorous honesty. And so I went, and I started to learn the things that you were telling me. And, and that lasted. I want you to know it lasted, but it lasted right up until I got drunk. I went 71 days of just staying sober because I was going to meetings, but I wasn't doing anything else. I was hanging out more in the front of the club than I was in the back of the club where the truth lived. And I remember, I just couldn't take the pain anymore because now the alcohol and the drugs were starting to get out of my system. And I started to feel things that I was very uncomfortable with. Sure, I had a sponsor, but he had seven months of sobriety, right? I knew how to navigate to those guys. <laughs> And I heard about 13 steps, so that was working for me, too. <laughs> and so, at 71 days, I just couldn't, I just couldn't take it. And, and I thought, well, maybe I can just go have one. You know, the great obsession of every alcoholic is to prove that he can drink like a non-alcoholic, you know, therefore non-alcoholic. I hadn't admitted to my innermost self that I was alcoholic. This is the first step in recovery. That's what it says more about alcoholism. So I tried it, and here's what happened. Y'all screwed up my drinking to the degree that I was not an almost anymore. Do you know why? Because I had been around long enough to realize that I had an opportunity to be someone. All of a sudden, being an almost 
was not who I knew I could be. Because I saw you. I saw you living a life that I always wanted to live while you were telling me stories about who I was. And I started to make that connection. And I remember sitting in my hotel room at the Red Butler Motel on 15th and Fremont in Las Vegas, catty corner from the Sundowner Saloon. That wasn't by accident. And I remember going into that bar that night and ordering my usual shot and a beer. And it was ship change. And the bartender who turned around to serve me was a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous that I knew from years. Talk about godly intervention. And I was like embarrassed, as only an alcoholic getting caught could be, right? <laughs> and, and I started to make an excuse, and he looked at me and said, if you're lucky, you'll have tomorrow. And I went back to my hotel room that night on April 24th of 1986, and I woke up the next day, I thought, this is no place for me. I know, I know where to go, and I know what to do, and I know who cares for me in ways that I always wanted to be cared about. And I went back to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Again, godly intervention. My sponsor, Max Brooks, was there waiting for me in his divine appointment. It was after the late lunch bunch meeting. There was no other reason that he should be there except he was there to greet me and welcome me back. He didn't say, where have you been? What have you been doing? How drunk did you get? How could you disappoint me? He said, are you ready? I said, Max, I, I really need this thing so bad. Since you don't understand. There's people who will die today who need this. The program of Alcoholics Anonymous is a program for people who want it. And if you're not convinced that you want it, you might as well go back out, as it says in the big book, to get a full knowledge of your condition and then come back. And I said, no, I want this thing. And we got on our knees and we did the third step prayer. And I've been clean and sober ever since. By the grace of God and the fellowship of this program, it's been a long, long time. Not only that I have drunk, but I've ever wanted to drink. I wouldn't trade this life for anything. You know, Laura's my third marriage and I've been married over 33 years. It's no coincidence I've been sober a little bit longer. You know, the daughters I walked out on, they call me dad, they call me pops. I have relationships with grandchildren by them that I never thought I would enjoy. I have two children who've never seen me drinking at all. I have, a, I have a daughter from a relationship, but we're not close yet. I hope one day she gets well and she's ready to have that relationship, and, but I need to give her that time and that space. I'll have my 10th grandchild in December. If she stays sober, long enough and you don't get hit by a bus. <laughs> These are things that can happen to you. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love everything it's ever taught me. I love the people. I love serving others. I love the steps. You know, for those of you who are new to the program, you're gonna hear something in AA that's not true. And I learned this a long time ago. You're going to hear that the newcomer is the most important person in this room. 
That's not true. You're important. But if we believe, and this is to those of us who have been around, I know my brother over there is going to have 33 years in, in Saturday, I think it is. Congratulations in advance. 33 years. And the reality is, if we believe that the newcomer is the most important person in the room, then we view AA as a giant furnace that needs new coals just to keep it going. The fact is, we who have been here for a while, if we don't do everything we can for ourselves and our own wellness and our own recovery in our own program, there's not going to be anyone here when the newcomer arrives. We all have value. You know, I could not do step 12 if there wasn't a person reaching out. When we walk through the steps, when we look at the steps, every step is contingent on the other. However, my friend Pete the Greek told me, I would ask him, I think he had 18 years, 20 years at the time. He was like a god, right? I couldn't believe these people were telling me the truth. They hadn't been sober that long. I wouldn't have believed you, Ed, but... <laughs> That's just how I was. I was always wondering why someone was trying to get over on me. And, and, and Pete told me, I said, what's step beyond today, Pete? And he said, step one. I said, what are you talking about? You've been sober for freaking ever. And he said, step one is the only step we have to do to perfection. I've made mistakes in steps two, three, four, five, up through 12. I've made countless mistakes with those. But since April 25th of 1986, I have not thought I had power over alcohol and I have not taken the manability back of my life from God. So if you're new or relatively new, step one, because if you, if we don't do step one, there's no way. I'm going to come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity because I won't think I'm insane. Why do you need to be restored from something that you're not? Doesn't make sense. Doesn't add up. And if I'm not needing to be restored to sanity, why would I ever become willing to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as we understood God? And if I'm not willing to turn my life over to the care of God, how honest do you think I'm going to be when I take a fearless and moral inventory of myself? And if I lie to me, I'll lie to you in step five. And my shortcomings and defective characters, we rationalize, we minimize, and we deny our condition. I'm going to shortchange those as well. And I'm going to be more concerned in steps eight and nine what you did to me rather than what I did to you. So any amends I make to you in step nine is going to be a half-ass contingent on you telling me you're sorry as well. But some magic happens. Steps one through nine. I react sanely and normally, and it seems that this has happened automatically. It seems. But a loving God, as he expressed himself in our group conscious, has empowered me. And if I'm tempted by alcohol, it says I recoil as if from a hot flame. I would no more take a drink than I would put my hand over my stove. Because I know each will burn me. And if I'm not careful... This fire will kill me, but the alcohol will certainly do that. Because I still have a physical allergy. You know what I don't have anymore? I don't have a mental obsession. That is what I recover from. I don't recover from alcoholism. 
Because again, 100% abstinence is the only solution for a person like me. But I can recover from the mental obsession that tells me one is allowable. So I do step 10 every day. I haven't relapsed since April 25th of 1986, so I no longer have to do the rest of the steps. I do those steps because I work with newcomers and others who are relatively new to the program. But I live in steps 10, 11, and 12. I continue to take personal inventory. It's interesting that word continue. It's assuming I have done something already. Otherwise, it would just say take a personal inventory when I was wrong properly admitted. It wouldn't say continue. It's assuming I am still working the program and I, because every step, and you check it out, every step, one through nine, is an inventory step. Every one of them, in its own way, is an inventory step. And, and, if you, and if you find a disagreement with that, just hit me up on Instagram or whatever and you tell me why. And just be prepared to lose the argument. That's all I, that's all I say. Because I, you know why? And, and I don't say that out of arrogance. I say that in 100% confidence of the first 164 pages that saved my life. And then once I take that inventory, I realize how little I am without God. So I need to go to my understanding of God, my higher power, and I need to go to prayer and meditation to improve that conscious contact so I can have power. I give up power that was killing me in step one so I can have power that allows me to live and be of value in step 11. And because I do a step 11 and I have power, now I need to go something to do with it. And that's where you come in. Because if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be here. You don't look like Eddie, and you don't look like Buddy, and you don't look like Jack, or you don't look like Will, but you are them. Recovery is a way of living, as I was sharing with my friend Bo. It's a way of living. Until you can learn how to live, just come back, just don't drink, just don't use. And little by little by little pieces of our life, I could have never imagined myself standing here today. But 36 years later, here I am. I'm Just like I knew no other way to live before AA, I, I know no other way to live since AA. AA has saved my life. And if you're dying and you want to know how to live, I'm going to share with you in closing my most favorite page of the big book, and there's many. But this is without a doubt, because it speaks to the heart of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is chapter two, there is a solution, page 17. We of Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were once just as hopeless as Bill, nearly all have recovered. They have solved the drink problem. We are average Americans, all sections of this country and many of its occupations are represented, as well as many political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds. We are a people who normally would not mix. But there exists amongst us a fellowship, a friendliness, and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. We are like the passengers of a great liner the moment after rescue from shipwreck when camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. Unlike the feeling of the ship's passengers, however, our joy in escape from disaster does not subside as we go our own individual ways. The feeling of having shared in a common peril is one element in this powerful cement which now binds us. 
but that in itself would have never held us together as we are now joined. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. My name is Rabbi Namakal. Thank you. Yeah.